0: This podcast is Challenging Opinions and is presented by William Campbell.
1: Thank you for downloading the Challenging Opinions podcast for September 23rd, 2019. There were many historical injustices in the United States and people have different ideas about how or whether they can be redressed in the present day. In this podcast, I'm talking to an advocate for this and asking what's to be done.
0: Challenging Opinions is the podcast where ideas are tested. Whether you are left or right, conservative or progressive, devout or skeptic, what matters is the strength of your argument, not the strength of your voice
1: coming up on today's podcast the only criteria for above all a doctor is whether they can do the job
2: right and and we believe that it's not a it's not a it's not a mutually exclusive choice Uh, of course not of course not
1: But, but surely that that's really the last place that you want to be treated by the diversity hire That's coming up shortly. But first, I want to thank all of my donors on Patreon. I appreciate them all. Uh, Patreon is basically a system that allows people to donate a buck or two per podcast or per month, and that helps me to devote more time to research and to finding interesting guests. If you could do the same as them, there's details on the website and at the end of the show. Here's what some people are saying about the Projection Booth podcast. Week after week, I'm mesmerized by the focus given great films and questionable films alike. But every episode is a learning and entertaining experience. This is hands down the best movie podcast. They cover so many different genres across so many years, from obscure movies to blockbusters. If there's only one podcast about movies and cinema that you listen to, make it this one. The Projection Booth Podcast, with new episodes available every week at projectionboothpodcast.com. Our brains don't really work so well with very small or very large numbers. If I ask you to imagine the distance from the Earth to the Sun, from the Earth to the nearest star or to the nearest galaxy, it's tempting to just think very, very far in all three cases, even though each one is millions of times bigger than the previous. Similarly, if you try to imagine the size of a bacterium or a virus, or an atom, you're probably just going to think very small, even though each of those is millions of times smaller than the previous one. For that reason, it's hard to get our heads around some of the statistics that are important for the way the world works. It's hard even to imagine the difference between a million and a billion. There are a few illustrations out there, but I like this one. Imagine you won a million dollars in the lottery and you decided to go on a shopping spree. You spend a $1,000 a day. How long will your money last? Answer, less than three years. Obviously, I'm ignoring interest and inflation here. This podcast is coming out on Monday, September 23rd, 2019. If you had won that million and started your $1,000 a day shopping spree on Christmas Day 2016, you would have run out of money last Saturday. But what if you had won a billion dollars? If you were spending it at the same rate, a thousand dollars a day, to run out of money about now, you would need to start spending not years ago, not decades ago, not even centuries ago, but thousands of years ago. About 718 BC to be exact. To finish spending a billion dollars at a rate of a thousand dollars a day, you would have to have started when the pharaohs ruled Egypt, before ancient Rome was even founded. That gives you just an idea of the difference in scale between a million dollars and a billion dollars. And I think that the reason that many people don't react proportionately sometimes is because our brains can't really process information at a very high or very low scale. But try to keep that comparison between a million and a billion in mind when I tell you about a criminal trial that's going on at the moment. Keep it in mind because the amount stolen was not one billion – It was theft from tax authorities across Europe of about 32 billion euro in Germany, at least 17 billion euro in France, 4.5 billion euro in Italy and 1.7 billion in Little Denmark. That's a total of over 55 billion euro, well over 60 billion dollars. Remember, that example of spending since the time of the pharaohs is only $1 billion. This is vastly more. The trial is still ongoing, but given the vast sums involved, it's astonishing that it has barely registered in the media in the UK, from where the crimes, it is alleged, were committed, or in the other European countries where the taxpayers were ripped off, or anywhere else. It doesn't help that the crimes were very complicated. Intentionally so. They involved what's called high-frequency trading, where computerised systems automatically buy and sell vast amounts of shares – They were programmed to produce a vastly complex trail of records that could be represented to the tax authorities to show ownership of very few shares when it came to paying tax on them, or very many shares when it came to claiming tax refunds because generating these records with misleading transactions was all automated, the amount that could be stolen was essentially only limited by the amount that the people involved typed into their computers. But the people on trial are not Russian mobsters aided by computer hackers from Macedonia. They're graduates of Oxford University, former employees of Merrill Lynch and Hypovreins Bank, one of the largest banks in Germany, And it's obvious that this scandal touches on many other big European financial institutions. Many of them have legal teams in court observing the trial. There's a lot to be said about the involvement of big banks in financial crime... But the point that I'm trying to make here is that because of the difficulty that humans have in processing very large numbers, we react in irrational ways. Think of the resources put into security in retail bank branches around the country, around the world. Many thousands are spent in every branch, making them secure, alerting the police if they're robbed, armed guards sometimes with police escorts to drive money shipments around the country and If they do get robbed, think of the resources put into hunting down, arresting, convicting, and imprisoning the criminals. It wouldn't be uncommon to get ten or fifteen years for a major robbery, say where a hundred thousand dollars was stolen. But that sort of money wouldn't even count as a rounding error for major white-collar crime. Yet vastly more attention goes to those crimes than to white-collar crime, and certainly they get vastly more effort at both prevention and prosecution than white-collar crime. There's a lot to be said about the fact that the justice system is way more lenient on white-collar criminals that the public might have a different mental image of criminals if shows like Cops had guys in sharp suits being tased instead of just meth addicts. But I think that a lot of the problem is that they're exploiting the fact that they are stealing so much money that we just don't have the mental facility to understand numbers that large.
0: Do you agree? Do you disagree? If you want your point of view heard, email podcast at challengingopinions.com and say what you think.
1: On the line, I have Anthony Galassi. He's the director of health equity at an organization called the Greenlining Institute. Anthony, Greenlining, where does that name come from?
2: Sure, William, and thank you so much for having me. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Greenlining Institute, we're based in California and we work on issues of racial and economic justice. Uh, the word greenlining and the term greenlining is a play on, and, and we strive ourselves to be the solution to redlining, which is the affirmative practice that was actually perpetuated throughout the United States at levels of the, the banking and financial services sector and uh, permitted by uh, state and federal governments. Mm-hmm. Uh, to perpetuate discrimination, particularly in the housing and financial services market, by which people of color, particularly African Americans, were denied loans and small business and entrepreneurship opportunities simply because of their race. We seek to combat that type of racial discrimination across a multitude of sectors. And in order to do so, we we advocate uh, at the state level and the federal level to promote the needs of people of color.
1: Okay. And As I think I remember it, some banks at least got out a map and put a ruler down on the map and drew a red line and said, people on this side, which just happened to be the uh, minority communities, we don't lend to anybody over there. That's what redlining was, wasn't it?
2: It was that and it was so much more. Uh, banks would literally take maps, like you said, and they would color in the areas where they did not want to invest. And one of the most important factors that that ultimately lent itself to determining which area was red, green, blue, and yellow, and this was the, the kind of gradient, the color gradient that they used to determine investment, was the number of African-Americans or people of color in that community. Uh, you can see it. These maps are still very much present um, in what we see today in terms of the environmental conditions in those communities, even though redlining was, was outlawed uh, through, throughout the civil rights movement, uh, the, the legacy of redlining and discrimination and segregation still lives today. And it's going to take a a concerted effort across advocates across these various sectors to confront that. And it's what we strive to do.
1: I can see from your website that you break down your areas of campaigning into health equity, economic equity, energy equity, environmental equity, and so forth. Are you sure all of those are racialized issues? Uh, What is energy equity all about?
2: Sure. So each and every one of our policy areas, you mentioned our energy equity program being one, strive to make sure that we are representing the needs of people of color at every turn. And it's also a recognition that there's been discrimination across all different sectors. And in in, in each one of those, people of color have oftentimes uh, bore the brunt of uh, unfair or lack of access to the, the products and services. So, for example, in the energy equity sector, there is uh, the multitude of growing clean energy technologies, whether it's electrification um, and other clean technologies that are being constantly innovated on. Oftentimes, they are, they don't make the, their way to low-income communities, particularly those with num- high numbers of people of color. We seek to rectify that by making sure that state and federal agencies that oversee the regulations of these different sectors um, are working to address that gap and make sure that Low income communities have access to clean energies, clean technologies, and that the businesses doing work to to promulgate these technologies are also serving the needs of communities of color. So there's a variety of different advocacy that we do um, in that sector. as
1: well. But is that just a feature of poverty, essentially, that if you're poorer, then a bigger proportion of your income goes on basic needs like food, rent, energy costs? Does that diverge from the issue of poverty at all?
2: So, you know, it's very easy to kind of get bogged down and to, to be sucked into that narrative that it's ultimately the individual's choice and it's, it's a result of no, the no, no, individual No, 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 uh, no, I didn't decisions. say that. I didn't, I didn't say that it's sure, sure. the
1: individual's choice. I'm just saying, is that really anything other than income distribution that's deciding that?
2: Uh, I would say, and, and I think the, the data that we've seen, uh, Says no, and a part of the reason for that is that you know so much of what we've done in this country and and in the basis of the United States is built off of these structural inequities that have pitted people of color primarily against uh, against more uh, well established and more of uh, affluent populations as well, especially in terms of. The decisions that are being made, these are, these are multi-million dollar investments that occur. And especially when, when a state or a federal agency decides to make an investment in a community, especially when they're thinking about the return on investment, that oftentimes puts diversity and people of color and, uh, you know, uh, you know, communities of diverse communities kind of at the back burner. So we want to confront those decisions. Um, we want to, we, we offer policies that promote Clean energy technology and that makes sure that state governments and federal and and the United States federal government is investing in communities, particularly those that are hit first and worst by climate catastrophes and climate change.
1: Okay. I understand what you're saying there. But what I want to get out there, and this is perhaps uh, linked with the rise of the vote for Donald Trump and populism in other countries, that for sure there is. A strong correlation between minorities and lower incomes, but that's by no means a perfect correlation. And you can say that perhaps on average black women have less opportunities than white men in the United States. Sure, But if that black woman is Malia Obama and that white man is a coal miner in West Virginia who dropped out of high school and has been working in a coal mine since he was 16 and is now 40 and too sick to work and with no health insurance. There's no way in hell that you could say that those particular individuals represent the whole. And if somebody, you know, isn't it attractive to... An individual white person, we know that young white males are actually not doing so well in the, in the job market now. Mm-hmm. Is it really helpful to use the minority tag? Shouldn't it just be anyone who's disadvantaged?
2: Well, we believe first of all that when we promote diversity, when we promote inclusion and equity, that everybody benefits and right now we're seeing an economy that is not only being favored towards the wealthy but that that's also perpetuating various forms of discrimination that we're hope that we strive to to confront and reject at every turn so it's not just that we're advocating for communities of color, for African-Americans, Latinos, but we believe that the policies of diversity and of inclusion actually benefit everyone. So when you talk about, and you, you compare Malia Obama, for example, to a struggling white man living in in, uh, in coal country, you know, we think that, first of all, everybody can and should benefit from clean technology, that when it's, and you know, you brought up the energy equity point earlier, mm-hmm. the more clean technology we Clean technologies we get out, and the more that people have access to them, uh, the better off each and every community is. So whether it's a low-income individual that's white or black or Latino or Asian, oftentimes because of you know their conditions, but because of the opportunities that they have been denied um, through the economic marketplace, we want to make sure that we're 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 pr- creating systems that pr- that permit them greater access to those opportunities. And again whether that's clean energy, access to health care, access to a job, um, access to a home, so on and so forth. You know, a lot of these same systems have been built up against low income communities. But we also have to recognize the fact that th- those communities are disproportionately of color. That's just a fact. Mm-hmm. Um, and we hope to, that that's something that we're trying to
1: strive but, towards. But that, and that's absolutely true. Disproportionately. Yeah. But there are exceptions to that.
2: Sure. Of course, there are exceptions. And what we can also say is that, you know, the nation as a whole is, is, is taking steps every single day. We're seeing the demographics shift towards one that's becoming more of a diverse nation. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think it's, you know, by 2045, by at least in the 2040s, the United States as a whole will be a majority, uh, minority nation. Mm -hmm. And, you know, unless we confront the disparities of race, um, and, and wealth, uh, Together, unless we are explicit about the the factors that created these conditions and offer solutions that confront them at their core, we are going to continue to create and perpetuate these same problems uh, and that's why you know we see the work that we do across every sector not just as a racial issue but as an economic issue as well uh, because they're so intertwined okay
1: the u s is a very divided country at the moment and right. i think you'd acknowledge that that division runs along racial lines perhaps not it perfectly does. so but but certainly to a significant degree and one of those the reasons for that is because of prejudice and because of the legacy of racism and racial division and so forth but it doesn't help to exacerbate that. does I'm looking at one line on your website here, and it's about environmental equity. And one yeah. bullet point that you suggest is help communities of color adapt to climate change. How on right. earth would climate change, the climate is the same for everybody. Why does race need to be brought into that?
2: Well, again, this is not just a racial issue, it's an economic one as well. And we make that connection very clear because so often the decisions that are made to prop up a community or to invest in a community is still very much based on uh, it still has a disproportionate impact on communities of color. Um, and in many cases, those populations still don't get the investment that they need in order to thrive and live healthy lives. So when you talk about c- uh, climate change in particular, mm-hmm. you know. The, when you look, for example, at a affluent and white neighborhood, particularly, um, in the state of California, and I'm going to use that this stage simply because that's where we operate in, you know, the impacts of, of climate change, while the temperatures may be similar in one community versus another, uh, the, their access again to, Uh, a highly efficient uh, AC unit or their access to solar panels, their access to uh, clean investments or to green space is vastly different. Mm -hmm. That is not just a climate investment issue, but that's a local zoning issue. That's a housing issue. And ultimately, again, These decisions are not only on economic lines, but on racial lines as well. So we want to make sure that we're telling both sides of that story. If we only talk about low income communities, which is an admirable goal to serve low income communities, Mm -hmm. we're missing the fact, we're missing the fact that people of color are disproportionately low income and these, and, and, you know, that inequity is because of Centuries worth of disinvestment, segregation, and discrimination, and unless the government works towards uh, confronting those issues and solving those problems, and is actively engaged uh, in, in improving conditions for those hit first, hurt, hit first and worst by community by uh, climate change, excuse me, mm-hmm. then we're not going to make any progress. So, in order, again, when when the government goes about and Expands its investments in clean technology and 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 you know places solar panels on buildings. We want to make sure they're doing that in every community, not just the wealthiest.
1: Your specialty is health equity. Tell me right. exactly what the Greenlining Institute is campaigning for. How do you view clearly medical care is a very hot issue. It's going to be a hot issue in the 2020 election. What are you advocating?
2: Well, it's been a hot issue for many for many election cycles now. And one thing that I fervently believe is that, you know, the healthcare sector and the health sector in general is the new frontier of the civil rights movement. You know, it was Dr. King who actually said that of all the forms of inequality, uh, I believe it was, he said, injustice in healthcare is the most shocking and inhumane. And I believe it's a, a, a clear injustice when, you know, People of color, by and large, are still denied the the type of access to care and the quality of care that will ultimately allow them to live healthy lives. Um, You know, there was a study, I believe, in 2016. That's
1: that's the problem. That's the problem. What's the solution?
2: Sure. The solution is, for example, number one, we need to make sure that everybody has access to health care. You know, there are various policies being shared every single day that look to to expand and to reimagine what the health care system looks like. Uh, But at the same time, you know, we think that every, that any proposed put forth needs to make sure everyone has access to care, but also that we need to make sure that everybody who seeks care is cared for in a way that is, uh, that, that reflects and under, uh, is understanding of their experiences. So one of the things that we advocate for on a policy front is to make sure that the next generation of healthcare professionals reflects the diversity of the patients. Um, you know, going back to one of the challenges we face, there was a study in 2016 that shared that, uh, the physicians being trained across the country, some of which still have the belief that black patients feel less pain than white patients. This was out of the University of Virginia. That's just astonishing that in 2016, medical students who are being trained every single day in, in one of the most specialized fields in the world um, can still have these preconceived notions um, rooted in racism. Mm-hmm. So, you know, in order one one way that we believe we need to confront that is by having a more diverse health workforce, but also one that's trained to meet the needs of all patients uh, regardless of their identity but is also but and is culturally competent um, and is willing to serve them at every turn.
1: Yeah, I noticed that on your website and it says and this is on your section of, of the organization people get better right. care and are more likely to seek care if they can see health professionals who look and sound like them. I That's don't fair. want I don't want health professionals who look and sound like me. I want health professionals who are competent and well trained. Sure. Surely the only criteria for above all a doctor is whether they can do the job.
2: Right, and and we believe that it's not a it's not a it's not a mutually exclusive choice. Uh, of course not, right of course now, not.
1: But, but surely that that's really the last place that you want to be treated by the diversity hire.
2: Absolutely, absolutely. But whether or not someone is a quote unquote diversity hire, we want to we want to abolish this notion. And again. We, we want to confront this notion that that would mean substandard care, right? The, the, this notion that we are promoting diversity over the quality of care is simply false. And we see them as working hand in hand. And right now, we're also see, like, seeing a failing healthcare system where uh, people of color are being, uh, aren't, don't have the access to care that they need. And another study and multitude of studies have shown actually that black women uh, have the mortality rate in terms of their maternal and child health are three times higher than white women that's mm-hmm. a crisis that's a public health crisis we're facing in this nation in large part due to the fact that there're not enough black women who are doctors we did a study in 2017 um that rec- that that interviewed women physicians of color across the nation and found stark disparities in how they were educated how they were trained and ultimately how they were empowered uh, amongst their patients that there's still this notion that if you see a woman of color in the in a hospital the assumption is that she's not going to be a leader or that she's not doesn't have the training specialty she needs to care for somebody and that's simply false that, that's, uh,
1: that's a really I mean that's an important uh, thing and that's a, that's a serious absolutely. problem but it, isn't it an entirely separate f- problem from the fact that poorer people in the U.S., who, as you say, are disproportionately minorities, have poor right. access to health care? Are you sure that it's a good idea to mix those two different issues? Because the solution to one is not always the solution to the other.
2: It's not. It's not. But they are connected. They are connected in that as we as we work to expand care, as we work to make sure that Every patient can see a doctor and doesn't have to go bankrupt in order to seek the medical care that they need. We also have to make sure that, that the care that they receive is one that will ultimately make them healthy. If, you know, if you go to the doctor and you spend a lot of money and there's so much effort to, to, to see the doctor, you obviously have to, to go through a series of tests. You have to pay your copay, so on and so forth. But you don't ultimately receive good care because of it. All that will be for naught. And we want to avoid that. We want to make sure that doesn't become the reality in the United States of America by making sure everybody, uh, every patient is seeks the best quality care. And in order to do that, we need more diversity. We mean we need more inclusion. And we're better off when we have a more, uh, equitable playing field to start from. And that includes having Anthony, people of color.
1: Anthony, you're speaking so enthusiastically that I think you got away from me on one particular question. I asked you what, what's okay. the, the solution on that. Are you supporting Medicare for all?
2: You know what? We, we are non-sectarian right now when it comes to the variety of policies. And that's only because, you know, every single day there's a new healthcare proposal being put forth. But we believe that any proposal, um, any health care reform put forth uh, needs to make sure that everybody has quality access to care, um, that it doesn't put anybody in, into bankruptcy, but also that everybody has high quality care. Those three central tenets have been at the forefront of one party's viewpoints. And that comes as a stark contrast to what we're seeing with the current administration that celebrates Uh, denying people health care that celebrates... You mentioned mentioned
1: that's that's at the forefront of one party. I guess you mean the Democrats. That's right. It may have been, but not entirely. And you're based in Oakland in California, and really just around the Bay is Nancy Pelosi, uh, represents the 12th district, which is mostly San Francisco. She has been less than enthusiastic about the more radical freshman members of Congress. She has. She might be being rational there because what she wants is not to get a very small enthusiastic vote that some people like AOC got. She wants to get across the line, to get 51% or to get Democrats to control the presidency and uh, potentially also uh, the Senate. isn't it sure. true that although she may be less ambitious, she might be more likely to be successful by being a moderate?
2: Well, what I will say is this, the debate that's being had right now about how to go about reforming our healthcare system, so long as, it, as, as there were, there's consistencies around wanting to expand care and improve quality, mm-hmm. that's the debate that should be had. And that's the debate that I think every single American is interested in having rather than one that's seeking to strip health care from everyone else. And to your point, to, to your question about, you know, the speaker's position as more of a incremental approach versus a transformative health care system that includes everyone, you know, That's going. That's that's already playing out in this presidential election, and we're seeing factions across the country uh, in large in 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 large numbers supporting a Medicare for all system. But again, you know, I think that whatever whatever proposal is put forth and whatever one is ultimately endorsed by either the next president or the next Congress needs to be based on a few simple uh principles and that is again making sure everyone has access to healthcare and that healthcare is high quality for everyone regardless of their identity.
1: I want to move on to just one other topic and I see you talk about technology equity as well and one of the things you list or you list quite prominently as the challenge is that right. minorities have considerably less access to the internet at home right. than, than, uh, than uh, white people in particular. Yeah, Home internet, only a few short years ago, uh, was a very narrow interest and, and not very many people were even interested in having it. Isn't it the case that things that were luxuries a short time ago are now being seen as almost necessities? That's a mark sure. of progress, isn't it?
2: No, it's not a mock of progress. But it but what is a mock of progress is making sure that it or is is perpetuating the same types of inequities and disparities in the in the digital divide that we've seen in terms of our economic systems. And it does no one any good when you are using the tools of, of of today, you know, our, our, our vast technologies and the innovation that we're seeing to further disadvantage one group versus another. That, in many things, is a, is is a mockery of progress. And that's why we work every single day, our tech equity team, to make sure that whether it's, it's the, the newest technologies being, being created every single day, that those investments are working towards employing people of color, that, uh, the tech sector is working to, um, uh, to distribute its 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 new innovations to the communities that need it most, and ultimately one area that they're also very active on is making sure that when tech companies uh, and these tech giants are collecting vast amounts of information, many most of which is not known to the user, mm-hmm. that that's not being used again um, to further disadvantage people by marketing products uh, to a certain community that they otherwise wouldn't to another, or by making assumptions about a patient's health. And wellness that would infringe upon their privacy. So those are some of the things that again, those if if, if the tech sector perpetuates those inequities, that's a mockery towards progress. I think if, if we want to take progress and move forward as a society, we need to do so in a way that's fair and just. Um, and any step anything other than that, uh, I think moves us backwards.
1: Anthony, final question. Are you optimistic sure. for the future?
2: You know, I I I get this question a lot, and my answer is is of course I am because I have no other choice. Um, in a world where I hope to uh, to to raise my own family, where I hope to to leave a legacy of my own, it, it wouldn't do me any good to be uh, to be uh, uh, cynical about the future. So you know, whether despite all the challenges that we face as a country um, and as a, as a as a as a as a globe as a nation, uh, uh, you know, the globe faces. I think that optimism is, is necessary if we're going to, if we're willing to confront, to be willing to confront these challenges. So absolutely, I am.
1: Anthony Galassi, Director of Health Equity at the Green Lining Institute. Thank you very much for talking to me.
2: Thank you so much, William. Appreciate you.
0: If you like the Challenging Opinions podcast, please rate and review the show on iTunes and other podcast providers. Share it on Facebook and Twitter. Tell your friends. But most important, make your view heard email podcast at challengingopinions.com.
1: Go to the website for sources and links to what we were talking about. And while you're there, please like the show on Facebook, follow at ChallengingO on Twitter, and follow the Greenlining Institute at Greenlining. And get in touch with me if you can suggest a guest or a topic for a future show. And thanks again to everyone who's signed up as a patron on Patreon so far. I really appreciate that. It means that I can devote more time to research and finding interesting guests. And if you could do the same as them and donate a buck or two per podcast or per month, you can go to patreon.com slash opinions or find a link on my website. You can do all of that, find out how to subscribe to the podcast for free on your computer, your phone, or by email, or get in touch with me. It's all at www.challengingopinions.com Coming up next Monday, that's September 30th, I'll be talking to the political scientist Stephen Taylor. The Challenging Opinions podcast is produced and presented by me, William Campbell. Thank you for listening.